Live from Washington, D.C., it's Quintessential Listening, Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Latin Carrier is a poet who, through his work, tries to help enlighten the understanding of the soul and the human condition. Latin Carrier, welcome to the program. Thank you, my brother. Let's begin this poetic journey. What is poetry? It is a very broad and a common question. And, and as humans, I think it's only right that we answer it in a diversity of ways and people tend to. I'm talking to you from the standpoint of a mystic. And for the mystic, we are souls. So in that sense, Poetry is the light of the soul, manifesting itself in various ways according to the growth or experience of the individual seeker. The seeker is the medium, or the physical, if you like, or the temple, or the vessel to which poetry, to which the soul conveys its light. Be it poetry, be it anything else. Tell me more about the vessel. The vessel is the temple of the divine. The soul is the real lantern carrier. Mm. And the vessel is the physical that lan- the vessel is the physical that lantern carrier is experiencing in and through. Let me put it that way. The soul is the deity and and the physical is the shrine. So the soul is the deity within the shrine. Why is poetry important? Life is nothing but an activity of consciousness. Every spiritual master would tell you that the deep states of consciousness, uh, while it cannot be expressed in words, they still use words because words give us a sense of meaning. But words actually being consciousness also means that words are prana, which means a life force. And life force heals. There are women who said that their lives have been saved to listening to poetry. Mm-hmm. People recite poetry and an audience may stand in ovation or go into stunned silence because it's so impactful. I was reciting one evening and I did a piece called Bewilderment and the, the host was so touched that he started speaking to the audience and he says to them, now at the clap of three, we will all say the words, we are healed. That was the effect that the poem had upon them. And every single person in that audience said, we are healed based on the poem I did and what he'd said about how he, the effect it had upon him in respect to the poem I did. Oh, so yes. poem, I, I want to impress that poems are consciousness. Everything is conscious consciousness and the words whether they're eloquent or non-eloquent, they come from a mystic or they come from an ordinary human, mm-hmm. they're an aspect of the life force. And life force has an effect on humans in whatever form. Please share with me an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power. In 1982, I was sitting at home. I had two days off. I'm a nurse. I was sitting at home. I had two days off. And a book dropped through the slot. It was brought by the postman. It was called The Path Autobiography of a Western Yogi. I picked the book up and I started reading. And within 10, 15 minutes, I was having a series of spiritual experience. And I just couldn't put it down. That was what transformed my nature. Nothing else in life did it until that point when I read a book called The Path, Autobiography of a Western Yogi. It was prose, but in a sense, you can call it poetic prose. It was so beautiful Mm -hmm. and so meaningful that it changed my entire life. So what you're seeing 41 years later is a manifestation of what happened to me in 1982. All right, thank you. That is how powerful words can be. I agree. 
Your book, My Guru. Yes. Shree Shin Moy, Life yes. of Teachers. Yes. Who inspired it. It was inspired by Shri Chinmoy himself, naturally. Mm -hmm. um, when I had this experience in 82, I found a book called Meditation, Paths to Tranquility. And in that book, they talked about many paths. Zen meditation, Christian meditation, Mehe Baba, Bhagwan Sri Rajnish, Maraheshi Mahesh Yogi. And there was a paragraph on Sri Chinmoy and the path of love, devotion, and surrender. That appealed to me, and they were very close to my home. So I went to the center on the 1st of October, 1982, mm -hmm. and I never left. So I've literally sat at the feet of Sri Chinmoy for 41 years. Mm -hmm. He's now in heaven, but I'm still calling it 41 years because my whole life has been shaped and influenced. And in, in essence, I was writing poetry before, but the shape of my poetry changed to inspirational, motivational, spiritual, because of Sri Chinmoy. But finally, I, my book is a modus operandi of spirituality. I'm trying to convey his message to the world at large. My guru. The word guru means different things to different people. Yes. Tell me what it means to you, my friend. Even the Indians him, himself uses it as a teacher. And the Westerners have accepted this term. So you have a guru for your children. You have a guru for your finance. You have a guru for accountancy and so forth. But we practice something called yoga, which is not the physical twisting of your legs. It's the mm -hmm. philosophy. And according to yoga, gu means darkness and ru means to dispel. So a proper guru, which is known as a sat guru, meaning a true guru, is a dispeller of darkness. A dispeller of darkness. Yes, like a Messiah or a Christ or a Buddha. Very nice. Thank you. Now, his picture is on the cover. Tell yes. me more about him. Sri Chinmoy was a very contemplative man. He had a lot of experiences as a child. His brothers dreamed that their mother was going to produce someone special in the world. He was drawn to an ashram at a very early age, visiting it a few times. His mother passed at eleven. His father passed at eleven, and his mother twelve, and he went straight into the ashram. Trichimoy tells us by the age of twelve-ish, thirteen, he was already realized souls. He had flashbacks. He remembered his former life. We believe in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. He knew why he was in this world and what his mission was. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, he spent twenty years in the a famous ashram, which is a spiritual hermitage in India, what he calls perfecting his inner realization until he followed an inner command to come to the West and practice spirituality and teach it to students. Within a very short time, there were devotees from all over the world. And so we spread over, I don't know, 70, 80 countries. Uh, so we know an international community of, of, of my students. As a person, he was always very contemplative. He would smile. He would speak very little. He was always serving. Service is the key word of his, of his philosophy. Serve and never be tired of serving. Constantly right throughout his life. He traveled all over the world doing the same thing over and over again, using different mediums, a, a bit like poetry. Mm -hmm. So he may use music one time. He may use poetry, use a poet, by the way, poetry another time. He might use paintings another time, weightlifting, running, but all to try to convey the message of the soul and to use the physical as a temple to demonstrate or what we, we call it manifestation of the higher light. Wow. So he was a poet as well. Yes, a supreme poet. Trichima wrote 1,500 books, many of them poetry and uh, his poems total nearly 200,000. They say Rumi was the most prolific poet. He wrote like 60,000. Sri Chinma wrote over 150,000. Incredible. So in your poetry, what are some of the predominant things? What do you write about? I write predominantly about nature. I write about love. I write about color, light. I talk about a lot about what I call cadences, 
and I talk a lot about what I call superlatives. And that's just about it. From these six or seven words, I create everything else. Now, if I was to give you an example, let's say I was talking about light, right? Mm -hmm. There'd be rainbows and sunsets and there'd be moon and there'd be stars, there'd be dawn and there'd be rays and glimmer and then there'd be horizons and then there'd be abstracts like luster, candescent, resplendent, effulgent. I use gleam and glisten and shimmering. So I take the word light and I create a lot of carousel and candela, things like that, and create different words from using that one word light. Nice. Let's go back a moment. Yes. Latin carrier. Yes, a carrier How of light. Yes. <laughs> that was my question. How did that come about? And when did this come about? Tell me more about it, Latin carrier. Initially, I was called a bard of solace because my poems are very peaceful. And uh, I carried that for years. And one day I was, I've been, for 22 years, I've been on the London scene. And one day the host said to me, uh, my poem is so beautiful. Some people give, you, give us themes and her theme was related to war. So I wrote a piece called The Sad Face of War. And it was such a beautiful poem. And she said, London, Carrie, you know, your poem is so beautiful. But I could not feel the solace of that poem. She says, you call the bard of solace. She says, I could not feel the solace of that poem. But light to us means illumining, yeah. awakening. And it was there. But then I start thinking, let me see if I can find a word which would be, which would also encompass the light when I do poems, which are not so soft and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Because to me, the sad face of war is carrying the messages of light, but she couldn't see it. I was explaining all my poems, they have a twist. I use what we, we can sometimes call negative connotations in order to show a higher purpose, a higher light. So I had a young girl on the battlefield and ambulances coming and I, I go through the, the, the vivid description of her being on the oxygen tubing and all the commotions which is going wrong and these destructive demons dropping from the sky. And I go, it's such a beautiful poem, but in there, there is hope. Right throughout my poetry, there is hope and faith and a call to justice and, and, and goodness and the humanity of man. But because the poem was called A Sad Face of War, I guess she couldn't see all that. So light is basically that which illumines, that which awakens, that which reaches the heart. My teacher was very hot on the word light. Mm -hmm. And it's not just ordinary light. <laughs> Beautifully stated. <clears throat> the reason that you're here today is to hear Latin Carrier. Please share a poem. Thank you. So I've chosen three types. I've chosen from my book called Blossoms of the Heart, which is one of my poetry books. I say three types because this book is predominantly sonnets, 14 liners. Some are free verse and some are structured sonnets like Shakespearean style. And I may have an occasional ode. The first one reflects nature and it's a sonnet, but it's a free verse. People call everything sonnets. When I use the word sonnets, I'm Shakespearean sonnets. When I use free verse, I'm just talking about a wee square poem of 14 lines. This one is called Another Day's Beauty. White clouds spread a canopy across my thoughts to announce the sanctity of daybreak. The magical pool of the radiant sun awakes as the chilled air dissipates and solace whispers to the breeze. When the evening mist settles, I assemble the sky, pulling at the blue of the beauty onto my soul. High upon the wind rides my longing, gathering the rays of the evening's dusk. Aye, so much sweetness in the light of thy delight. Let me drown in this wine to become thine. My heart is like a bamboo reed, conversing with zephyrs of my love for you. The song bearers enchant my spirit 
while the waves crash, the God of sunset greets me with an illumining luster. Not finished, London Carey. How does a poem begin for you with an idea, a form, or an image? Unusual in the sense that everything happens. Everything happens. My favorite way is in, when I'm in a semi-twilight state on, lying on my bed, either at night or in the morning, lines come to me and I can see them clearly. But I can take a line from something you say or someone say in society. I can take a line from a poet. I'm not using his line, but he triggers an idea. I can take lines from visuals, looking at pictures or paintings. I can take lines from hearing a song on TV. Lines come to me in different ways, looking at the movie uh, or a scene on the street. And I do what I also do, what I call observational poems. These are deliberate poems where I'm looking at something. For example, scenes in Kenya, I have a lot of observation, observational poems based on just looking and writing. The gift of writing has never been a problem for me. People talk about writer's block. That has never happened to me. So when you write a poem, who leads yes. you or the poem? Who takes the lead? You're taking me back to the beginning. The mystic thinks that he's doing nothing. Everything comes from within. So the poetry starts from the soul and it manifests to the words of the physical frame. Everything start, begins in the inner world in seed form. So I'm just allowing this body just being an instrument for the higher light to flow. Right. All great writers have great writing influences. And I know of your guru. Who are some of your other writing influences? And what makes them great in your eyes? That's a very good question. I was writing on the lamppost in Grenada, West Indies, when I was four years old. And English is my, by far my strongest subject. So by the time I was 11 years old, I'd finished reading Shakespeare and Chaucer and Milton and all the great writers. I also did literature at advanced levels. So I covered famous books, Charles Deacon's Great Expectations, four or five plays from Shakespeare, Webster's Duchess of Malfi, William Golding's Lord of the Flies. In terms of poets, I was also fond of uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Whitman, Emily Dickinson, and, and Edgar Allan Poe, many poets, and famous writers. So I was, we have a rule in, in, in creative writing, we say to read, <laughs> practice. By the time I was 11 years old, I was practically finished reading because I was so much in love with reading mm -hmm. and writing. Now, did you come from, or do you come from a literary background? No, I wouldn't say that. Six of my uh, brothers and sisters went to university, and, but my mother was just a poor, simple woman who didn't have too much of schooling. On my father's side, it's a little better, but he didn't even go to university. I tell people, and I feel it very strongly, that I'm a carry-on from a former life. As a child, I was following the evangelist everywhere. I was born and brought up an Anglican, but I had the interest I had in religion was far in excess of what my family had. And I didn't know then, but looking back now, I could see I might have been pursuing a spiritual path before. I could also have been someone in a former life. The teaching is that you do not lose your experience when you die. The soul retains this experience and it returns with it in the next life. This might be a bit diplomistical, but the idea is that the Anthony now is a product. The Michael now is a product of a future life. And whatever you're carrying is because you've had it before. That's why we get child prodigies, for instance. Yes. It doesn't just happen because the experiences has been saved. We call it the Akashic Records. Some people say in the soul's experience. If I should leave this body now, when I return 10, 15, 20, 100 years, I will simply start or carry on for, from where I left off. Wow. So I would say that although I didn't excel in my early life, in this life, mm. I was probably a scholarly person in a former life. All right. Please share another poem. 
Okay. This one is called, I Wish to Be a Lover with You as My Rose. Many of my poems are addressed to God, but I'm cloaking it in a human way so as to make it accessible to humans. I once sealed my memory to the wounds of afflictions and desires. Now you have kindled a flame of fire in my soul so I could shine like the morning star. When my world seemed lost, my capacity to sow was stultified. You came like a breeze above the clouds, dispelling my mistiness of shadows. There was a cold chill, an endless darkness in your absence. Now my heart awakes to the glories of shooting stars. Even as the fish enjoys the breath of the ocean, make me your udder to savor the milk of heaven's sweetness. Let my heart's lotus open like the flower to the dawn, for I wish to be a lover with you as my rose. I don't know if I mentioned images, but images are one of my seven or eight words. I'm very hot on images and some of my, some of my poetry are filled or image filled with images. Knowing what you know about the world. Yes. Does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Again, it, if I have to be practical, there are struggles and there are strife and there are wars and there are confusion and there's inequity and there's the, there is a kind of demarcation and gender. We know all of that. But from a mystical standpoint, we actually see it as a beautiful world. We see everything in motion. We're not actually going backward. This world is like a spiral. So we move sideways for a little bit mm -hmm. before going forward again. But eventually, God is life in motion. I learned that from Chuchinmoy, actually. Christianity, I thought of a static God. In spirituality, no, life is motion. And we see that motion in the physical sense, don't we? Yes. So William and Orville Wright couldn't fly a plane, but today we're going to the moon, aren't we? So life itself is motion, movement. Now all these things we're doing in electronics, we couldn't do that 40, 50 years ago. So the same kind of movement that is happening in the outer world is happening in the inner world. The microcosm is part and parcel of the macrocosm. Everything is one. So I, I'm writing to inspire humans. If you notice some of my poems, in, 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 I'm speaking of dispelling the mistiness of shadows. In many of my poems, they include despair, loneliness. And I'm talking about the things that matter to human, but lower down in the poem and changing it because I'm trying to lift humans. Mm -hmm. My purpose is not pain, but to lift, to elevate. Sri Chinmoy teaches that only God can help. So I never think of myself as a helper, but an inspirator. I see myself as a human trying to inspire my fellow brothers and sisters, mankind. And society is evolving in spite of all the sad things which I mentioned and the sad things which we know. So sometimes I dwell on the sad things, but even when I'm dwelling on the sad thing, I'm doing it for the intention to elevate. Because we learn through struggle. The soul learns through struggle. And ad adversity is the candle of the divine. Adversity is the candle of the divine. Yes. That's a very powerful statement. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Stars walk in the darkness. Stars so walk in the dark. Oh, we may that's another one I've never heard about. Stars walk <laughs> in the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Writing poetry and sharing poetry are two different things. What made you decide to write and share your poems? That's what I'd like to know. I was actually writing before sharing. Okay. We're not quite complete because I had a friend as a child just two of us mm -hmm. we used to share each other's poetry when I was smaller but mostly I wrote by myself I started writing short stories flash fiction science fiction articles on yoga philosophy and so forth plays and I was putting them on them on something called hub pages I think it was hub pages which made me finally decide to share my poetry live 
And when you share the poetry live, and particularly if you add music to it, it enhances it. And then people say to me, oh, you read in a particular way, which enhances the beauty of your work. When I comment on people's work, I'm talking all the time about diction, elocution, intonation, because all these things are adding to the flow. All these things are adding to the beauty of the written word. Because the way one person might read someone else's work is not the same way another person would read it. And I have personally heard people reading their works on the poetry scene where the content is phenomenal, mm -hmm. but their reading is very sad. Yes. You could hardly hear them. They're shy. There is no confidence. And it takes away from the beauty of the written word. If the person is not a good reader, a good poem would come over in a very bad way. If the person is a kind of unmesh muhitka, you can bring the vibrancy and the enthusiasm into the piece. Some pieces called for vibrancy and enthusiasm. Wordsworth had a lot of poems like that. Mm -hmm. uh, sad poems, interesting enough, require that. But not everybody has that gift. There are some people, you've heard Zoom lots of times like I have, and, and live audiences, some people straight away, like Leslie Constable, when she starts reading, it's an entirely different thing to what she writes. Her voice is so beautiful and so soothing and so melodious. When Alexandra uses her graphics, her intonation is also significant. So the words, the, the intonation and the words, when they, they, when they blend in harmony, is different flowers in a garden or different instruments in the hands of a maestro in an orchestra. Now, you are a slam poet, an award-winning yes. poet. Tell yes. me about slam. How did you go from writing to reading to slam, which is totally different? Initially, all my poems are 14-liners, or just a little bit longer, or a little bit shorter. I'm happier with shorter poems. You could say so much in short poems. Slammer's poetry, they are judging their rules and the poem has to be at least three minutes long. If you're lucky, you get four minutes, but mostly the standard rule is that each poem should be three minutes. That's when I started writing longer poems. But I found initially that my poems are too rich, too profound. And some people used to tell me that. So in slam, you have to break it down to make it relatable. A lot of people like social justice. A lot of people like unrequited love. So I had to learn all these things so I can write about anything. I, that's why I call myself a creative writer. Creative writers could write about anything, but sometimes you have to write something that the people relate to. I can have three or four people coming up to me in an audience of 40, listening to a spiritual poem, and they would say the most amazing things. But that only happens because they are receptive, what we call receptivity. They, they in tune with what I'm saying. The majority wouldn't be if I'm too spiritual. I would lose them. And sometimes people are absorbing my poems after I'm finished. They're very quiet. They come to me 10 minutes later and tell me how lovely it was. But at the time, they do not give the same clap as they would do to an erotic or a raw poem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the different styles. So I've had to learn to write in a slam poetic way. So the poem identity is written for slam, which is three minutes long, and the poem talking at sunsets on the horizons, where I'm talking about the guy who was uh, choked to death in America. George Floyd, yes. George Floyd, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, I talk about John Lewis or Muhammad Ali. And mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be uh, entertainers. It could be something in life like fear and loneliness. Mm -hmm. I make fear and loneliness sing sad songs. And, and I put a lot of images in it and I make it beautiful to suit the audience. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've uh, had an opportunity to participate in some slam poetry competitions. Just a couple. Yeah. That's a different vibe. Totally different. And as you said, you need to share your work in three minutes or less. Yes. So to yes. move from writing to reading to sharing to slam, <laughs> I commend you. I actually don't do it very much again because perceptions vary. 
Mm-hmm. And you have five judges and their perceptions would vary. So true. The host may have a different perception and the host can influence the judges also by what he says. Some, some hosts have become silent now, but not all. Some, if they like the poem, they still say lots of things that that influences the host. So slamming is a very subjective kind of a thing. So for in that sense, I don't like it. But overall, a, a decent poem, not all the time, a decent poem would tend to win because some judges have learned to remove the high score as well as the lowest score. So they're minimizing the bias. All right. Because bias is inevitable in poetry. Yes. Please share another piece. Okay. This one is called Untruth. It's it's a wise poem. It's, it's, it's designed to teach. Snow begins to fall like flakes drifting in the atmosphere. Zephyrs blow wherever love takes them, carrying these messengers of heaven to foliage, flowers, my stained glass windows. The light flakes kiss my face and hug me intimately. The healing effects, sometimes exactly what I need. In this noisy world of modern consumerism, I am a spark of spirit, sojourning like flakes, like the breeze. Indeed, since I aspire for the highest, then perhaps I'm their master. Still, you would not necessarily know that. Sometimes I'm fragile, vulnerable, susceptible to danger, to being squashed upon like white fragments herald in snow. Truth is often just as delicate, requiring wisdom light to illuminate its path. O lantern, be as wise as Solomon and as gentle as the snow. (laughs) That was beautiful. Yes. Is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? A poem to me is an offering. And for some, it's also a healing because many poets have sworn to me that they write because of therapy. Others say they write because of pain. In my case, it's an offering. So it goes back to what I was saying. I'm trying to inspire, to elevate, to awaken, to reach the heart. Because I know you have a soul, each soul has the same potential although we may take different walks of life, different paths, I know that something I say would either influence you or somebody in the audience. You have 40, 50 people listening to you. Somebody's bound to come to you and say, I identify. That happened just last night on a different scene in a different setting. They come to you and say, that meant so much to me. So you're not really doing it for yourself in the true sense. Yes, you are. And no, you're not, because souls are similar. It's an offering to humanity. And because of the pranic force, because of consciousness, the energy is being conveyed, whether you like it. And once you open your mouth, you're sending out an energy, be it negative or positive. We create the world by the vibrations that we offer to it. We're coming out of a pandemic, Latin Carrier. Yes. How did your writing change during the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic? I wrote a lot during the pandemic and some are actually performance pieces, three minutes, four minutes. I haven't chose them in the selections, but the idea of hands, face, mask, and all this vaccine theories and conspiracy things. And it was very dominant for a couple of years and people were dying like crazy. I wrote quite a couple on the Indian situation too. People were just lying in corridors. There were no masks and the, no oxygen. You remember? Yes. And it was a terrible situation. And the New York situation was very terrible. We all kicked off in New York. And then again, you began to see the disparity. They were telling us that people had comorbidities. And then later on, you realize that there were so many other things. Black people were working twice as hard. They were using transportation more. They were more in the hospitals. They were dying first, in fact. And people say, oh, because they have diabetes so high. It was nothing like that. There's so many social factors which was influencing the whole thing. 
So COVID brought out the disparity and the inequity between whites and blacks, not only in England or America, to tell you the truth, all over the world and other shortcomings and man's greed. And basically everything is happening because of our inner nature, to tell you the truth. We just need to learn to live in harmony. Okay. What did you learn about yourself during the pandemic? I'll share what I learned, that life can be beautiful and deadly at the same time. I learned a lot from people who were at home, how lonely humans were, how afraid humans were, the domestic strife that was taking place, and the things that people didn't say. For example, I felt that many humans were afraid of death. People thought at one point they were going to die and they were not ready. And that created a lot of problems because the Italian experience, many people were dying. Then America, many people were dying. Then in England, many people were dying. So that loneliness and fear uh, I talk about. In my case, because I've been living alone almost 40 years, and because my faith is so intense, it didn't affect me in the same way. Mm. I was used to living alone. I was used to rising every single morning to meditate. I was used to going around the world in service. I've traveled so many times serving in strange countries, or if you like, challenging countries, not strange. And then it's very hard to describe my faith because I believe in the afterlife. Some people are uncertain of the afterlife. So that fear of the unknown, fear is generally related to the unknown. It doesn't have to be the grim ripper, it could be things in life. Am I going to lose my job? Is my husband or wife going to walk out? Fear is definitely related to the unknown, but but I think people don't necessarily want to die. You know, we know we're going to die, mm-hmm. but when we face with the thought that we might not wake up tomorrow, it becomes a problem for us. So I learned a lot about human nature. Mm-hmm. I also learned a lot of humans coming together to help others. So the generosity spirit came to the fore in many humans for some time. What do you think your work conveys about being human? The light of the infinite. The light of the infinite. Tell me more. Because I see the body as a temple for something higher, as an instrument for the divine. For me, the body is nothing but a temple. What I am is something infinitely greater than this physical. So the physical is the soul's way of manifesting a creation, if you like, of glorifying its purpose. And it's very necessary for God that we are, 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 are as physical instruments. My teacher used to describe it like a tree and its branches. Mm-hmm. The branches are as equally as important as the live tree is the source, but the branches are attached to the live tree. And without the branches, the live tree cannot manifest this light. So you are very important and I'm very important and diversity is important yes. because you're doing, you're doing a job now which I'm very grateful for. I cannot do it but you're helping me to manifest that light Mm. just by what you do. So when you write or when you share, do you have a particular audience in mind? Who would be your ideal reader or listener? Great question. When I go to Prasanna's this afternoon, I will read spiritual poetry because I've come to realize that from what people tell me there and the way Prasanna reacts, that it is a very spiritual group. Mm-hmm. And having said that, I see that on the open poetry scene now, and even in other poetry groups, David Leo Siwa's mm-hmm. group, a very enlightened group, and it's increasing. So we're seeing the bad all the time, not knowing that changes are also taking place. People are becoming more aware because they're not listening to TV like they used to. They're not following the agenda of the corporate few, but they're using the Instagram and the Facebook and they're tweeting and they're looking up things. They're learning much more. And that is happening because there is an evolution in consciousness. Consciousness is changing and shifting. And that happens whenever a master of a very high standard, be it a Christ or a Buddha or Sri Krishna, comes into the world. 
It changes the consciousness because they're advocates of God. They direct con they're direct bridge between uh, God and, and humans, the conduits of the divine. Here's a question for you. Do you have yes. any poetic doubts? Doubts? No, I never have any poetic doubts. Talk to me. The thing is, I see so many people doing so many things in poetry, and they're putting it on, on Facebook all the time. I actually don't feel the need, because in spirituality, we talk about what we call dispassion. Dispassion is basically a kind of detachment. And right throughout my life, I've been trying very hard to be detached. My sister's son was gone dumb for weeks ago in Texas. If I was like most humans, I'd be crying and tearful and tremendous pain. I write to her. I try to do my duty. I console her and I offer my gratitude and everything else. But I see everything as an aspect of God's love. Beautiful. The evil as well as the good. Mm -hmm. And whatever is taking place to the, to the mystic, whatever happens in divine providence mm -hmm. is happening because there is no other alternative. There's good, there's bad, there's ugly, as well as indifferent in the world, or yes. indifference. Yes. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? We're actually trying to correct it, isn't it? But I've gone from the days of using you in my poetry. Nobody wants a preacher. No, they don't. I agree. So, so you have to take things, if you really love humans and you want to help humans, you have to take things upon yourself behave as if it's what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And then people accept it easier. Please share another piece. Okay. I'll show you a nature piece. It's called the Magnificent Plateau. <clears throat> Splashes of undulating white makes the ravine looks even more beautiful. This is a visual poem. We've seen these scenes before. Surges of aquamarine ripples beneath a canopy of blue sky and scattered clouds. You hold my gaze, a nature lover, watching the stream seeping through the magnificent cobbled stones on either side of the stunning canyon. The verdant hue of the foliage stands regal, enclosed by glorious gray rock walls, plus an amphitheater of magical cliffs dominating the lushness of this plateau. The harps of minstrels calls to me, my beloved whispering melodies to hearts, blending together as one in this breathtaking pinnacle moment of being. Mm. I gazed upwards, my soul spilling gratitude for this bewildering light of creation. When I listen to you, I feel like it's very visual that you're framing a picture, a photograph in front of me. Yeah, I try to create beauty and I use images to create beauty yes. to uplift humans, yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, somebody else would see the same picture and have a total different description, not me. I, I, I put it in an inspirational way. Moncal's Kalu said, here's a quote. Poetry yes. is like a canvas. You can paint any picture with it. What do you feel about this statement? Indeed. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next one. Oh, tell me more. <laughs> the next one is a regular sonnet. Mm -hmm. If you want me to tell yes, you more, it's please. more like a, what you might call a Shakespearean sonnet. All right. Then. It's called Incant Incantations to Love. But again, it's love for the higher. All right. Unspoken, speechless, thy immortal bliss, birthless, deathless, beyond eternal time. In my abyss, O oh sweet effulgent kiss, peerless are the cadences of your chime. All where you burn, thou great supernal fire, so matchless is the joy of thy delight. Dowsing the flames of darkness and desire, replacing them with your resplendent light. No one doth speak who looks upon thy face. Unworthy now is speech and so denied. A seer arose your paragon of grace, a songless music now in you abide. 
within, without, around, below, above, in trance, intoxicated with thy love. Your work is phenomenal, my friend. Thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> How do you think poetry gives voice to the voiceless? <clears throat> it empowers them. A woman came to me one night and she says, did you write that poem? I said, yes. She says, I was not going to come next week, but I will definitely return to hear you. Mm. I did two poems once using some Islamic words, but they were, it's an English poem. And the host came up to me and he says, wow. He says, your poem is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Another time, the same poet heard a poet before, the same host heard a poet before me. And the poet did something which was so negative. Every now and again, somebody, negative poems have their place, but every now and again, somebody does something which is so negative that nobody in the audience likes it. It's very unusual, but it can happen. Either because some kind of pedophilia or something really dark. And the host remained silent for a long time. And everybody was silent. Nobody clapped. Nobody spoke. Then he, he says, I think I'll bring on someone with a more peaceful vibe. And that's when he called me. Oh. And that's when I really began to know that sometimes, even if people say nothing about your poem, mm -hmm. it's influencing them. In a very deep way. Yes, I do. So you must never really, like I said, words are prana. It's a life force. And it can take you through pain. It can take you through happiness. It, it, it can hurt you in different ways. Or it can save your life. A woman wrote from China to a guy who lived in England. Mm -hmm. Talking about his poetry. And saying that she was on the verge of suicide. Until she read his poem and she changed her mind. This is actual things that happened. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. But you've written four books. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. It is. It's a pranic life force. This is what I've been saying to you all the time. Life force is alive. Let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll say it again. <laughs> Yes. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. What's yes. out there? It's not what you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on the editing process? There's what we call perfect perfection. I was listening to your girl today and she seemed to think a poem is finished. I don't. Mm. But you can call it perfect until you look at it a week later and realize you could change a word. It was perfect at the time. I wouldn't say it was not perfect, but a week later, you're not the same person. Your consciousness is different. My consciousness may be different five minutes from now after I've left you. Tomorrow I may be in a different space entirely. So there is always movement and there's always room for movement. In the same way, there's always improvement and there's always room for improvement. But we don't necessarily say the poem was not perfect. It was perfect at the time, but you go from perfection to perfect perfection. Life is an ever-transcending game. It's never finished. Uh, palatable food can sometimes be, be like tomorrow's starting journey. You eat something today, you suck a mango, and you say, wow, this is the best mango I've had. But there's no guarantee that you may not meet a mango next week, which is even sweeter. Mm -hmm. So for you, I'm, as yes. I'm listening, yes, that there is no qualitative difference then between a quote, a good poem and a bad poem. Because to the writer, it could be perfect. Am I correct? Yes. Yes, writers are different. And the way I may perceive something is entirely different to the way that someone else may perceive it. But again, my own poem would be perceived differently by different people in an audience. So in a sense, the poetry is what you as the individual get from it. When I read Rumi, I enter the spirit, spiritual realm straight away. 
but I've heard so many talking about Rumi as love poems and giving it to their husbands and to their paramours and to their sweetheart because that was it mean for them. All Rumi's life was spiritual. He was so intoxicated that sometimes he didn't even know where he was, totally absorbed in God, but he wrote in the language of love. Wow. So how we interpret the thing is always different. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Has a poem you've written ever humbled or frightened you? No. I did, some of the the uh, the sad poems I actually love depends on the way it is written. You know, exquisiteness and discernment are always there in poetry. Some slam poets have it, and I like those slam poets. Discernment is there in any poet. When a, when a poem is wise and discerning, it is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. This guy starts this poem, a soldier of the legion lay dying in Algiers, and you realize he's, he's talking about death. There was lack of woman's nursing. There was dearth of woman's tears. Mm -hmm. And then he talks of the soldier dying and his comrade beside him, and he's giving the comrade a message to take back to his parama, to take to his mother, to take to his sisters and brothers. And that poem is so incredibly touching. The guy is lying on a battlefield and he's relating a sad and solemn tale, but it's so beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's always a question about accessibility. And I'd like to know from you. Yeah. Should one employ a lot of mental energy to solve a poem? No, because the poetry can seem to be coming from the mind, but initially it comes from the heart. It comes from a deeper place. Women talk a lot about a broken heart or my heart is this or my heart is that. When we use the word heart, we're talking about a, an energy center in the being which is invisible. It comes from the subtle realm. <laughs> yeah. So poetry should come from within. When we mental, there, there is mental poetry. And mental poetry actually does have its role because mm -hmm. some people, that's what they seem to need. Some people are better with the erotic stuff and the raw sensual stuff. I hate it. I can do it so easily. For me, it has no meaning in the sense that uh, it's so easy to write. Mm -hmm. But if I do it, it's like I'm lowering my standards and I'm influencing the world. Yes. I said before that you and I uh, create the world by, by the vibrations that we offer. When I'm standing there, and I'm offering uh, the, the very vivid description of sex. And you're listening, you might be clapping and laughing, but I feel that I'm de debasing myself. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. We've reached my favorite part of the program. I view it as being a mini, M-I-N-I, -I, poetry concert. This is where you share two or three of your works without interruption from me, back to back. <laughs> <laughs> Latin carrier, you on the stage. Okay. <clears throat> oh, love who gaze upon my soul so sweet, tarry a little longer in my coal. Your nectar robes adorn my heart complete with diamond sparkle garlands at my door. Red flames of your illustrious fire converse in silence deep within my being. Of thy supernal rapture never tire. Give now my sight with an effulgent seeing. My mind serene, my peace and ocean's bed, tumultuous waves, thy stillness calms thy flow. My inner flares kept whispering and said, glow incandescent candle maker, glow. I lay intoxicated in my swoon, in sweet rapport conversing with the moon. The blue moon's glimmer peeping through the morn, it's alluring beauty, my only goal. The sacred light of yet another dawn, ever new replenishes my soul. A tiny candle sparkles in the heart, I float upon a tide of crimson waves, caressed by sunbeams whose sweet rays impart the inner grandeur of Aladdin's caves. Oh, light! Thy balm now percolates my core, within without thy mystic golden glow. 
as peace ascends thy psychic tears that flow, love's opened up the portals of her door. She kissed my heart upon this morning's hue, awoke my soul's affinity for you. The first time you embraced my fallen heart, a ray of sunbeams blossomed in my soul. I had searched endlessly for that sweet spot, my breath to kiss thy face, my only goal. Hopeless in despair, I felt abandoned. All ceaseless cries and searches were in vain. My woes were not aware that love had scanned the intricate longing in my pain. Beloved one, such captivating gaze, my wretched frame unworthy of thy truth, and yet your radiant form that set ablaze, ignite the flickering candle of my youth. A timeless bliss upon your birthless show, thy golden flute, a jewel in my coat. Come, my blue-eyed dams love the pond, do spin for me another wondrous yarn. For I would fain but take thy dainty hand, joy dances upon this glorious dawn. My breath I give to heed thy life's desire, this heart awaits to hear thy ballads tell. Do charm my co and set the soul on fire, your songs a stirring lyre of thy spell. I hear the tadpoles sing, the ripples roll, the starlit grandeur shimmers on thy locks. Merrily bluebirds acquiesce to, to praise thy glories way above the rocks. So come, my blue-eyed damsel from above, do kiss this flame and wrap me in thy love. One more. Burgundy roses. <laughs> this is about flowers. Burgundy roses shining in meadows, colors of beauty for weddings, for love, thorns to protect this grandiose heroes, redolence of jasmine straight from above. Peonies, dahlias, and red garland thrills, purple lavenders and orchids galore, cute lilac lilies in aubergine fields, magenta tulips and rainbows in flow, pink raven sunflowers, exotic smells, burgundy hollyhocks blossoming pride, blooming perennials weaving the spells, magical camellias where love abides, butterflies dancing in glorious light, souls filled with teardrops in joyful delight. Phantom right. <laughs> Thank you. We've reached the end of our poetic journey. There's so many more questions. <laughs> oh, do you think you were meant to be a poet? Um, I was meant to serve. I was serving as a child. I was serving in my family. I was serving with friends. I worked as a clerk in a shop. I was serving. I became a policeman. I was serving. I became a nurse. I was serving. I worked in a shoe shop. I was serving and I'm serving to poetry. I've traveled the world over 300 times, serving, doing humanitarian deeds, doing this and doing that. My heart is, Sri Chimoy gave me the name Manatita. Manatita means beyond the mind and in the heart of our Lord. So someone who lives in the heart is a servant. The servant thinks of we and ours and not me and mine. The servant does not separate, the mind separates. The mind analyzes, the mind thinks of me and mine. The mind in the mind is the nature of the ego. The heart is like a child, it is spontaneous. It identifies, it becomes one with. All saints are like that. They love even the birds and animals. And, and um, my nature is the nature of the heart, is, is the nature of love and service. So I see myself as a servant. What surprises you most about being a poet? But I think I want to ask you, what surprises you most about being a servant, about serving? I'm, I'm dealing with the word surprise because I feel it is being asked from me from within. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a surprise. I feel that's what... It's like knowing life's purpose. Sri Chima used to say to us, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. 
there's something on Instagram called No Chosen. It's all mm -hmm. about the Christ and the story of the Christ, but it's called Chosen. And the, the disciple, is, it's someone who is chosen. Mm -hmm. Everything comes from God to the disciple. It doesn't have to be to, to any, no one needs to think that way. But even the atheist has love for his daughter or his car or something. We all love something. We're not so different after all, the Chinese, the Japanese. Everybody has a sense of love, a sense of goodness, a sense of moral. We don't need to learn it at school or in a book. We are born with it. There is a, a, an innate thing pulling us towards the light. So I'm not surprised to be serving. It's like, it's, it's a calling. It says, once I read that book 30 years ago, and everything just fell into place, and I knew why I came and what I was meant to do. It's not a surprise in that sense. What surprises you about being a poet? Nothing, because I was doing poetry from the age of four. Oh, and okay. I could say it was tied in with my English language. Mm -hmm. I was good at English. I love writing English. I love reading the English poets. So it's something which was there in childhood. Yes. yes. I grew up with it. Mm. I changed to a spiritual nature much later on after I started meditation okay. and worship. I understand. But before that, I was writing about everything. And I can still write about everything because I consider myself more of a creative writer rather than a poet. Because I write flash fiction, short stories, articles on yoga, plays. I write books. I can write anything. I have a book at the moment called Maxims for Children, The Life and Teachings of Jesus the Christ. So I, it's just that I choose to go the spiritual way rather than be someone of, of a name and fame. I, I try to shy away from name and fame. All right. Yeah. Again, there's so many more questions. <laughs> so <laughs> many more. So that's why I'd like to invite you to come back maybe in the summer, in the fall or the winter, just so that you can share more. I would love to, my brother. You and I are both instruments of the divine. Some humans are conscious instruments, and some humans are unconscious humans. In your case, I think you are conscious instruments. Raul, Raul is a conscious in instrument. David Leo Siwa is a conscious instrument. In any case, most hosts, whether they're conscious or not, they're serving. Mm -hmm. And anything we do to elevate mankind, my teacher had an award. He created an award. He called it the Torchbearer Award. And that's given to people who are serving humanity in various ways. It could be a Mother Teresa, it could be a Nelson Mandela. Yeah, people are serving all the time. And some of them are very quiet. We may not even know of them. But we're lifting humanity. And whether it's in the field of ecology and environment like Gorbachev did, or mm -hmm. peace like Gorbachev did, mm -hmm. or freeing countries like Gorbachev did, what he did for East and West Germany is phenomenal. And we haven't given that man enough credit. But again, everything is determined by what we call the absolute. That is essential to the mystic. Mm -hmm. Nothing comes from us. There is a master plan. And so I, I pay obeisance to that master plan in you. When I say namaste, as the Indians do, they do it casually like the Muslims say, inshallah. But what I'm actually doing, I'm paying homage to the light in you, which is the same as the light in me, because we won. Mm -hmm. The creator and the creation are one, and we come from the same source. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Black, white, Chinese, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> I, I said that I'm perfect in my imperfection. That's beautiful. You, you might have gone to the New York Cafe because they gave us that very theme once, and I have a poem on it. Really? <laughs> Did you know that? No, no, no. That's just a phrase that I've used uh, throughout the course of my adult life. That well, Elemental gave that very theme as a topic. <laughs> Imperfect perfections. Yes. And I elaborated a little, yes. and we all had to write a poem on that. So I have a poem in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want you to save it for the next time. Next time. Yeah. <laughs> We've come to the end of the program, and as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. All right. Thank you. Quintessential Thank you. Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.